0: King David writes in Psalm 139 that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in our mother's womb by God himself. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And how wonderful it is that cutting-edge biological science has affirmed our intricate and amazing design. Not only in our bodies, but throughout the entire spectrum of living organisms, incredibly complex schematics and designs have been revealed at the smallest level. Designs and unique structures that far and away surpass the most advanced circuitry and computer systems known to man, with specific functionality that require very precise and detailed information. Our special guest on part two of this combined episode of Apologetics Profile and Good Heavens is Dr. Stephen C. Meyer of Discovery Institute in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Meyer says not only is neo-Darwinian evolution bereft of any causal explanation as to how this information could have arisen naturally, but that this information is best explained by intelligent design. And that designer is the God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our adventure begins in the early 1950s at the Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge University, where pioneering scientists have been making groundbreaking discoveries about the physical world since
1: 1874. The Cavendish Laboratory, an outpost, but in the heart of the university to which it belongs. Here, Rutherford first split the atom, but that was yesterday, and Cambridge is always busy with today's questions using the victories of yesterday as a springboard. Cathode ray tubes within medieval walls. But there's no contradiction here. Today, just as when those walls were new, they contain some of the foremost minds of the age. The habit of a monk or the shirt sleeves of a scientist. Down the centuries, they have followed the same star. They all wanted to know why, why, why.
0: Let's let's, uh, let's scoot along to 1953, and in uh, researching for our talk, I discovered a lot of interesting things happened in 1953, Steve. Uh, you may or may not know, but uh, Queen Elizabeth was crowned, uh, Eisenhower was inaugurated, um, Fahrenheit 451 was published, and the first 200 copies were published with asbestos covers on them. How about that? <laughs>
1: interesting and then, to know. Yeah, that's
0: fascinating. And, and uh, so Jonas Salk, you know, here we are in the age of, of, of this vaccine. And Jonas Salk in 1953 administered the polio vaccine to himself and his family in 1953. And uh, why am I talking about 1953? Well, another thing that happened, and I, this was fascinating too, all these things happened. Edmund Hillary and Tenzig Norgay were the first human beings to get to the top of Mount Everest. So this was all 1953, but of course there's something. Even this is a, a banner year,
1: yeah, because I know what you're leading up to, yeah, right? Yeah,
0: pretty fantastic. You know where I'm going with 1953. <laughs> so uh, here we have, you know, the famous Watson and Crick who do the uh, who find the the helix like ladder twisted ladder structure of DNA, and then you also have the Yuri Miller experiment where allegedly uh, they created some sort of um, primordial molecular frankenstein-like thing that uh allegedly we got all the right chemicals at least going in the right direction and somehow we got some little biological thing going on there so but this happened in 1953 but before you started with that i wanted to just point out too that the groundwork for both quantum mechanics and the Yuri uh, mill uh, the, the um DNA discovery was laid in the Cavendish Laboratory in, in Cambridge. I mean, the foundational groundwork of all the legwork that had to be done. Um, and over the door, this fascinated me. I, I learned this watching you uh, talk to uh, Eric Metaxas, that over the door at, at the Cavendish is Psalm 111.2, put there by none other than James Clerk Maxwell, who united electricity and magnetism. So there's a Great are the works of, of the of Lord, of going- sought
1: out by all who take pleasure therein. And under that same door passed every day, James uh, Watson and Francis Crick as they were unlocking the secret of uh, genetic information. the yeah, it's fascinating.
0: Right. It is fascinating. And so, Steve, I think you do a wonderful job elucidating this in your first two books of Signature in the Cell and, and Darwin's Doubt. That biology, and I know you you attended the 2016 uh, conference uh, at the Royal Society, I understand, correct, Uh, where they were trying to reimagine, uh, we're basically out of explanatory gas, guys, and we need something, help us, to to come up with some, some better explanations for what our science, the deeper we dig... The harder it is to cling to to uncle charles's interpretation of of nature we need some interdisciplinary conversations going on as to how we might approach this so i i i don't know i I, there wasn't much in the press about that conference and what came out of it that i could that i read but um anyway the 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 current crises i guess for lack of a better word in in biology is this idea of explicit direct information at the cellular level uh, that is, that cannot be explained by materialistic, naturalistic causality. So let's begin with that.
1: In 1953, yeah. Watson and right. Crick elucidate the structure of the DNA molecule. People had known a bit about DNA before. They were getting suspicious that it had something to do with the transmission of hereditary information, and uh, the search mm-hmm. was on. And it's a, I tell the story of the of the search and the, the competition between the research groups. It's really a fascinating tale in uh, in. Uh, running up to the publication on April 25th, 1953 of a short 900 word essay in Nature. Um, The greatest ideas can sometimes be expressed very succinctly. And this was one of those cases. Um, Mm. Watson and Crick published their their proposed structure for DNA. Uh, But I think an even more important development came four or five years later when Francis Crick, working on his own, proposed what he called the sequence hypothesis where he suggested that the chemical Mm. subunits of the DNA molecule running along the interior of the twisting helix, the twisting helix is made of the the, made of sugars and phosphates. So that's the sugar phosphate backbone, but on the inside of the molecule are what are known as the bases, Mm -hmm. And the arrangement of those bases he proposed, it provides information for building the protein machines, the proteins and protein machines that keep cells alive. So he, He essentially proposed that the bases are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written text, or we would maybe say today the digital zeros and ones in a section Mm -hmm. of software, which is to say it's not the physical or chemical properties of these chemical subunits that give DNA its function but rather it's their arrangement in accord with an independent symbol convention later discovered and now known as the genetic code yes that allows the dna to store and transmit information for directing the construction of the proteins so we have something in the cell this this hypothesis was not the kind of thing that could be confirmed with a single experiment it took se- seven or eight years as scientists working on both sides of the atlantic were able to elucidate the larger what's called gene expression system or the system of protein synthesis but in fact what they discovered was that dna is, is it does contain information in a digital or alphabetic form and that information is directing the construction of protein machinery so that would be something like our contemporary cad cam technology where called uh, computer-assisted design and engineering, where an engineer might sit at a console, write code, code code will go down a wire, be translated into a machine language that can be read at a a, a manufacturing apparatus and then used to construct an airplane wing or a section of an automobile or a garage door or whatever it is. So information directing the construction of mechanical parts, that's what's going on inside the cell. It's It's a complex information storage transmission and processing system in even the simplest living cell. And that's what has to be explained. If you want to explain the origin of life, because you, you, you can't get life going without that information, Mm. that digital code. Mm. And of course, in my, my book signature in the cell, I unpack this as an argument for intelligent design along the following lines. I note that uh, even Richard Dawkins has acknowledged that DNA contains machine code. Richard, uh, Bill Gates says it's like a, the DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever created. We know from experience, our uniform and repeated experience, that it takes a programmer to build a program. Indeed, it takes a mind to generate information in any form that we find it, especially a digital alphabetic form, whether we're talking about hieroglyphic inscriptions or paragraphs in books or the information that you and I are transmitting over a radio signal or some kind of signal going up off of a satellite or whatever information always issues from <laughs> a mind, not an undirected yeah. process. So the discovery of information at the foundation of right. life right, right, provides right. a powerful indicator of a designing intelligence acting in the origin and history of life. But for, for very, very uh, right. Uh, uh, right. powerful scientific reasons, I show that those strictly materialistic or naturalistic explanations fail to account for the origin of information. Mm, mm.
0: Well, I know I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. I did my master's thesis uh, with Michael Ward. I don't know if you know Michael. Um, He wrote uh, Planet Narnia. He's a a, a C.S. Lewis scholar, but uh, he really turned me on to C.S. Lewis's imagination. Yeah, and uh, I, one of the things that fascinated me in reading Lewis's um, uh, science fiction trilogy in uh, Out of the Silent Planet, um, Lewis notes that there is this mythology that follows in the wake of science. And of course, Lewis's specialty was medieval literature and language. And I, I couldn't help but notice the similarities between what I learned from Lewis about medieval alchemy, if you will, using the sun, this, this quest for how to turn base metals into gold and, and one of the ways in which the alchemists believe you did this was to sun your metals, to, to leave your metal out underneath the sun just for just the right amount of time, and then maybe you'll get tin into some kind of uh, a valuable metal or gold or something. But I, I noticed that it was, uh, I think it was in the, the, in the, wow, the Mystery of Life's Origin that yeah. was originally penned by, uh, that, 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 that uh, J.B.S. Haldane in 1928 proposes this idea of what we have come to more popularly understand as as this biological soup idea. But Haldane uh, believed that if there was ultraviolet light penetrating the, the Earth's primordial atmosphere and engendering certain chemical reactions with molecules and things. That, so here it is, in in the 20th century, we sound a lot like the, the Paracelsus in the medievals of the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, where we're sunning our our molecules it's this, it, you're right it's the same the fallacy
1: that, that energy alone can configure mm-hmm. matter in a way that will um produce a propitious outcome uh the the, the s- s- shining right. uh, uh light sunlight onto lead is not going to rearrange the atoms to produce <laughs> gold out of lead All
0: right Right. To do
1: that, you you need to rearrange right, right. things. And the rearranging matter or configuring matter in specific ways is another way of thinking about or, or, or talking about information. Um, the technical term in original life research mm-hmm. is the problem of configurational negative entropy. How do you rearrange things? How do you rearrange simple non-living chemicals so that they produce the complex information-rich biopolymers that are ne- a necessary condition of producing life? And there are these models in origin of life studies called mm. self-organizational models, where the idea is that either the bonding properties between the constituent parts of the, say, DNA will determine the arrangement of the of the uh, uh, individual constituent parts of the DNA, or that some sort of external source of information passing through a system will cause things to self-organize. <laughs> Energy alone does not produce configurational negative entropy or also known as functional information or specified complexity. That's to configure things properly Mm -hmm. in a specific way to achieve a particular outcome or function requires information. And again, information is the province of mind. Energy and information are not the same thing. Energy right. typically blowing through a system will be right. uh, will will cause a dissipation of information. will will increase entropy, and decrease mm-hmm. uh, uh, <clears throat> information. There are systems where you can push energy through a system and create a kind of s- uh, simple symmetric order. Um, but symmetric or like you know, if you drain a bathtub or if you uh, have a a, a vast uh, wind blowing in off the Gulf of Mexico a tornado might result so you can produce simple order from energy but not highly configured specific mm-hmm. forms of information I, I used to illustrate this with my students I'd have two right uh, coke bottles uh, fastened together with a plastic fastener and I'd have blue dye and sparkles in the in the coke bottles and I'd shake them like this to create a vortex so the energy going into the system would create nice, nice symmetrical order, but the little sparkles never spelled uh, uh-huh. Steve Meyer is your favorite professor or something. Um, the, 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 so energy can produce, it can produce simple order, but it doesn't produce specified complexity or information. And so the, the idea of self-organizational models hmm. in the original life, I've always said, they do a good job of explaining what doesn't need to be explained. What needs to be explained in biology is not simple order but rather complex specified information. Mm. And, uh, and it's a very you're right. I've never really thought about right. it. It's the, right. the, the fallacy right. is the same as the fallacy that drove alchemy. that energy alone could, could produce same. configurational same. negative entropy,
0: right. Right, 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 and you know what 's fascinating in the popular literature, of course, there's the popular we talked about the popular literature of cosmology. The same holds for biology, maybe more so because this is this seems to be more in the forefront of people 's minds, especially in the internet um with popular popular level atheism uh, and, and i 'm sure you're familiar with Dawkins' quote that that, that Darwin allowed me to be a, intellectually satisfied atheist by giving him this uh, this vernacular to be able to describe things naturally apart from God but in the language of the popular literature and I think Carl Sagan certainly proliferated that there's a uh, wonderful clip I think it's still on YouTube I saw it a couple of years ago where Carl's on um, the Tonight Show Johnny Carson was a big fan of Carl Sagan and Sagan introduces this 90 second clip or this two second, two minute clip. I don't know how long, it's very short. But there was a series of pencil drawings uh, that would just, it was an illustration. It was uh, that would, these living organisms would morph. A fish would turn into something else and the the fish would turn into a whale and the whale would turn into this and the whale would turn into a crocodile and the crocodile would crawl. And so, but there was this morphological thing and that the audience is like, yeah, that's
1: great. Four billion years compressed into 40 seconds. Here we go. These are molecules before for the origin of the first cell. The first now they're cell. dividing. Yeah, the first communal organism composed of many cells. Here's our ancestor who was stuck on the ocean bottom. Which then evolved gill slits, the ability to swim, something now recognizably a fish, an amphibian which colonized the land hundreds of millions of years ago. A branch led to the dinosaurs, but that's not our branch. Our branch, small, furry, scurrying creatures who took to the trees and then came down, invented language and technology, and became us.
0: <laughs> we'll be right back. But if you read the language of Cosmos, or if you read Jerry Coyne, or Stephen Jay Gould, what seems to be the case is like I, I picked out a paragraph in, in Carl Sagan's Cosmos a while back for a presentation and I, I focused on the language that Sagan uses and I matched it with some other popular level literature that I saw and when they get down to the to the idea of, of where these body plans are coming from where where the trees or the flowers or the, the as you're saying the specified complexity that the, the kind of language that you you drill down to in the popular level is something like uh, trees appeared, um, alligators evolved, birds evolved, uh, bears emerged. Yeah. And there's, there's this vague ambiguity when it comes like a veil, Steve, where, where it's like, okay, here no farther, some that we can't, the inquiry stops here and we just sort of resort to vague and terminology and then we throw a ton of time onto it and it becomes almost sacrosanct um, and, and you can't you can't question this. It's just the, the way it is. But it, but it seems like, um, given your experience with 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 uh, natural selection and, and, and writing about this topic, uh, do you see a similar hesitancy to go back? a step further abductively and say this was all the product of a mind? Is there a similarity between the cosmology and the biology when it comes to this this idea? Oh, absolutely. This, this
1: idea? But, but, you know, it's really interesting to drill down on the specificity of the mechanism. What kind of creative power does the mutation selection mechanism actually have? You're right. In both popular and technical literature, right. there's a, a, a kind of ambiguous use of language that that I think is covering up a lot of ignorance about what's really going on. What really caused the origin of fundamentally new organisms to arise? Um, mm. the, the, often, you find the the if we if there's a, a major innovation in uh, a morphological innovation. Uh, the evolutionary literature will say things like it was selected for some given function um, in the passive voice. Well, who's doing the selecting? Is nature selecting? If so, how Um, it was selected or it evolved? Uh, These are words that are not really giving you any specificity about the causal processes at work. The claim is that random mutational changes um, that arise uh, independently of the organism's survival needs, uh, but by uh, f- um, uh, w- will will eventually hit upon some uh, some um, new new variation that will confer a, a functional or survival advantage or reproductive advantage. Problem is that mutations in our experience, when we're when we're dealing with once we realize that DNA contain digital information, that in our experience. Uh, of computer code analogous systems we know that digital that changes in uh, specifically arranged digital or alphabetic characters tends to after very few changes tends to degrade meaning and, and function and it turns out that the experimental work mm-hmm. that's been done on dna has shown the same thing that dna can be that sections of a gene can be uh, uh, altered by mutagenesis And with up to a few handful of mutations, you can sometimes uh, maintain function, you can tweak function, but when you get beyond a certain number of mutations, the resulting proteins lose thermodynamic stability. And there's a a scientist in Israel named Daniel Tofik, uh, who alas, has just passed away, and uh, condolences to his family and colleagues, a wonderful scientist, but he's shown that um, typically between three and 15 mutations in, 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 a, in a gene will produce a, a, a dramatic degradation in the, the structural stability of the re, the resulting protein. So there's a limit to how, how much mutational change can be endured before there's too great a loss of information. Um, if you ask a computer programmer, um, hmm. if you've got an existing section of, of, of computer code that codes for a, a, a pro a program that you like um, can you hope by randomly changing the zeros and ones to uh generate a new program or algorithm uh before you end up degrading the original beyond any function at all you know and Programmers, no, you mm. can't do that. I mean, if you start randomly changes, the zeros and ones, you're gonna degrade the function of the original long before you you stumble onto some new program or operating system or algorithm. And the same thing turns out to be true in the biological context, that's mm. the point. So the point is therefore, mutation and selection is not an adequate mechanism. It does not have the creative power to generate fundamentally new protein folds, let alone new um, organs, or uh, tissues or combinations of organs and tissues that we call body plans. Uh, so that's, that's what the argument of uh, part of the argument yeah. of, of my previous book, Darwin's Doubt, that the, the origin of new information, even in a biological mm. context, even starting with a pre existing organism, is a mystery from the standpoint of modern evolutionary theory. Mutation and selection lack mm, the creative mm, power to generate itself. the information needed for morphological innovation, even at the level of, of, of novel protein f- folds. Uh, mutation and selection can modify existing folds, but it does not generate n- uh, completely novel folds. And a new pr- protein folds are the fundamental unit of innovation in in in, bio- in biology. If you can't build those, you can't get anywhere
0: yeah it doesn 't and we 've really made no progress since Darwin was musing about the the lack of i mean it 's a whole nother hour to talk about the, the the Cambrian strata and the the lack of precursors to all these body plans that 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 are there in the strata, but it was a big problem for Darwin that really in one hundred and sixty seventy years we haven 't really made any any scientific progress on how to account for. Um, the, the, uh, the phenotypes of, of all these wonderful critters that are in the strata of, of Cambrian, of Cambrian. Well, I, I'd say we made a um, lot so, of
1: progress well, on, uh, on getting a better understanding of the history of life. The, the fossil record is now, as it was in Darwin's day, profoundly discontinuous when we're talking about the origin of the higher taxonomic categories. The, the um, m- mutation and selection, again, do a nice job of modifying existing structures within very narrow limits. They can they mm-hmm. they can uh, produce uh, um, modifications, but not innovations. And what we see in the history of life is the abrupt appearance of major innovations that um, lie beyond the reach of the creative capacity of mutation and selection. And pose a great question too about where where Mm. are all the Mm. the missing intermediates that should be there on a Darwinian uh, account of things and that pattern has become more pronounced that pattern of abrupt appearance and discontinuity has become more uh, pronounced not less since Darwin's time Uh, this was the subject of my previous book Darwin's Doubt: Mm. the origin of
0: uh, yeah uh, yeah animal
1: life yeah
0: yeah Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time. Um, Your brand new book is The Return of the God Hypothesis. It reminded me that the whole idea of return reminded me of the biblical portrait of Israel coming out of Babylonian captivity and returning to to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And, uh, you know, it implies a loss of our understanding of God in creation i think and now robustly thanks to science in some regard the church is kind of waking up to this idea that that god is absolutely he hasn't gone anywhere we <laughs> we were the ones that sort of went else, elsewhere and sort of left we had a garage sale we did our thinking we went science. elsewhere yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. no th- right, this is right, the right. this is the story and of the book i you know the book weaves uh, a, a, a case into a narrative you know and there's a there's a story here and that is the the rise Mm. of modern science in a decidedly uh religious judeo-christian context in western europe for specifically religious reasons the early scientists wanted to um, study nature to to reveal the glory of god Um, that perspective Mm. was lost in the late 19th century we inherited a very materialistic conception of science into the 20th but there have been three major discoveries that are bringing that back. The universe has a beginning, as best we can tell. The universe has been finely tuned from the beginning, and we've had these large infusions or bursts of new biological information since the beginning in our Earth's biosphere that have made new forms of life possible. I argue that when you add those three things up, Mm -hmm. or try to explain that ensemble of evidence that we have about biological and cosmological origins, the God hypothesis uh, does and should indeed return.
0: It reminds me of of the scripture in Colossians where it says that by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And I think that's a, a great way to wrap up. Steve, thank you so much for your valuable time. Blessings to you on your book and your public endeavors in reminding believers and non-believers alike that uh, that God is still on the throne uh, and that he's the best explanation for why everything is the way it is. Final thoughts.
1: Yeah, the passage that uh, uh, Clark Maxwell quotes on the uh, Cavendish door, uh, the, the, the door of the Cavendish laboratory in Cambridge, great are the works of the Lord sought out by a halt who take pleasure therein goes on a couple of verses later to say, um, uh, he, the Lord, has caused his wonders to be remembered. And I think we live in a very privileged time where mm. science has discovered yes. things that about uh, events that took place very long time ago, the origin of the universe, the origin of the Cambrian animals, the origin of life, the setting of the fine tuning parameters. But all of these, I think, are mm-hmm. uh, evidence provide evidence of the reality of a transcendent intelligence who is a- also active in the creation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and th- that intelligence has produced great wonders. They're all around us, we take them for granted. And I think science is causing us to remember yeah. those acts of of design and uh, indeed creation that uh, that uh, make our our world the wonderful place that it is. Amen. Thank you, Steve. Um, so, just briefly,
0: uh, I'm going to leave all this information in the description notes. But, uh, what, uh, what would you, what, what are some parting advice to Christians just getting their feet wet into this idea? Do I have to, I don't want to be overwhelmed with science, but what can I do to find out more about this? Well, I would recommend reading your book, of course. But, what you, the Discovery Institute has a wealth of resources that are available to people, correct?
1: I have a new website that goes with the book called Return of the God Hypothesis. And from there, you can navigate to the websites of previous books to a YouTube channel where I've done debates and public lectures. There's a on the website, there's a nice uh, uh, interview with Eric Metaxas about the book that we did in a public conference yes. and and yeah. a long, uh, well in a, in a, in a, in a an hour long lecture that summarizes the thesis of the book. So there's, there's some uh, good entry level stuff. I also have done a series with cold water media called uh part of their true you series a 10-part lecture series for high school and college students mm-hmm. called does god exist which is summarizing the case in the book at a at a, a level that's very student friendly that's on amazon i think uh uh it's Fantastic. Called does does god exist with true you so there's a lot of resources and um, discovery institute has many many great scientists and scholars i'm just a one of one of many here. So uh, there's a lot, lot. If you want to get an introduction to all this, uh, climb on one of the websites and start to navigate from one to the other. And it's a it's a it's a fascinating topic. So we welcome people's interest.